So we're in the middle of, a, of a, a series on the wisdom books, which I'm really loving. And we decided that Psalms is huge, so we're going to separate it into two weeks. And so I was talking with Pastor Greg about this, about like how are we going to separate these two? Like how, what, are we, what are the lens we're going to look at Psalms twice through? Because you could do a bunch of stuff. You could go songs of lament and songs of joy. You could go um, songs that are about his own struggles or songs about just giving praise to God. There's lots of ways to bifurcate Psalms. And so we settled on... Uh, one week we'll talk about when things are not going well, how to relate to God, and then how to relate to God when things are going well. Because there's lots of psalms that are about when he's, David, when he's writing them, is really, really struggling, and there's lots about when things are going really, really well. So that's how we're going to divide them. And um, he asked me which one I wanted, and he's like, do you want to do the when things are going well, because that's easier? And I'm like, no way, that one's way harder. Give me the one where things aren't going well. I don't know what he's going to say next week. I, it's it's hard. When, when things are going fine, I find that so challenging to involve God in. So I'm like, okay, give me the one where it's hard because I can relate to that one better. He gets to do the hard one. So we're going to talk about what is, it, what is it like when, how do we relate to God when things aren't going well? And Psalms has a lot of examples of this. So it's a great lead off of what we talked about last week with Job. Okay, so just to catch you guys up if you weren't here. Uh, we went through Job, one of the other wisdom books, last week. Really, really, obviously, top-level overview because it's just one week. But the point of that uh, sermon was that Job has this crazy wrestle where things are really not going well in his life, and he has a decision to make. And he comes to a not-so-great decision, and then God intervenes, and then he kind of makes a better call. The first conclusion that he comes to after some of his religious friends' advice is, he's like, you know what, God? I'm really good so you should throw something my way. Like all this calamity that's gone on in my life, I forgive you or whatever, but like I'm a good person, throw me a bone. Okay, that was Job's first conclusion. God intervenes and says, uh, you're not good, I'm good. I'm just good. Regardless of your perception, what's happened to you, I'm just straight up good in ways you'll never understand. And he goes off on all these rants about how much he loves animals and feeds them, and it's kind of strange. But he just talks about how good he is for a while. Then Job's, Jen Job says, uh, wow, I'm, I repent in sackcloth and ashes, he says, and I despise myself for even thinking that I was somehow more well, smarter than you. Or that my goodness somehow demanded something from your goodness. Like, you're just good. So he ends up, you know, as a, as a good resolution. But this whole idea of God just, his, his answer to when things aren't going well is just, I'm good. Which is, just, it's, a, it's a funny thing to say. Because it's, sometimes that's not enough for me, right? It's like, oh, that's nice. Thanks for being good. Look around. Like, it's nice that you're good, but I don't know how to... How do I interpret that as good news to me in this exact moment, that you're just good all the time? So Psalms is helpful with this, because Psalms is a dialogue with God. So let's get into it. Um, what I want to do is I just want to read one, and it's like 11 verses. It's kind of long. If you want to close your eyes, or you can follow along if you have, your, uh, if you have a Bible with you. Uh, it's um, it's uh, Psalm uh, 42. Um, but actually, you know what? Don't. Just close your eyes and listen to this, okay? Just close your eyes and listen, and I'm going to read it. And uh, it's the As the Deer Pants for Streams of Water psalm. It's a really great one. And just listen, as you're listening, listen to the, uh, I don't know, make your own observations. I won't tell you what observations to make. <clears throat> it says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. 
while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, and your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Okay, I don't know about you, but when I read that, there's just just tons of flip-flopping in there. Have you noticed that? It's just, why is my soul downcast and yet I will praise him? Why is this going on? Oh, but you're so good. And it's this, I, it's hard to follow. And it's almost the beauty of the tension that makes Psalms so amazing. But I made three observations that I think we can relate to uh, that maybe will help you sort of put yourself in, in, in uh, David's mind as he's writing this. Uh, one thing I noticed, God's never on trial for any of this stuff. God's never on trial for any of the things that he says is happening to him. He's, God, God's never the one who's being blamed in any of these things, blamed directly for it. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, that's like one of my go-tos, like immediately, <laughs> when things aren't going well. And so I, I'm reading Psalms going, you never accuse him of anything. That's impressive to me. I accuse God of things all the time. I accuse him of not being there, of, of why you shed light on this, why, why, why has this happened? And actually, God's often the first one on trial when things aren't going well in my life. The first one. So God's never on trial. So he's never blaming him for anything. The second observation I make is he never, uh, David doesn't make his problems smaller. Okay, so here's what I mean by this. When I, when things aren't going well in my life, I have this super handy trick, maybe you can relate to me with, that you can try, actually don't try, it's bad advice, but I'll tell you what I do, is, uh, if I am out of control and I don't feel in control of my life and things aren't going well and I'm just filled with anxiety, super cool trick, you just make your problems smaller. Just stop dreaming about that big thing or don't care about that relationship so much or that thing that bursted your bubble, mm, you know what, it's not so important, I'll pick something else. And we cl- make our worlds closed in smaller and smaller and smaller until all of a sudden I feel confident in ruling it. And I feel like this is, I don't have any problems anymore because I've shrunk all my problems. But David's like, you know, he's not saying that. He's like, deliver me from the army that's there. It's not, I don't want to be king anymore. It's deliver me from the army. He's not making his problems smaller, which is one of my go-tos. So, you know, put God on trial, make your problems smaller. My go-tos. Third one, I don't see him hiding his feelings. He's not, just because he's not putting God on trial, and just because he's not making his problem smaller, he's super vocal about how he feels, which is also something I tend not to do. We're going to get into this later. But if I'm confused, it's, it's vulnerable to vocalize my confusion and anxiety, isn't it? Like it feels, you feel weak or something. But David doesn't 
it doesn't seem like it bothers him at all to tell him how, to tell God how confused he is and how much doubt that he has in his own heart or how much he's struggling. Again, God's not on trial. He's talking about his own heart. But there's something about he's just not afraid to bear his feelings out there. Okay, so those are the observations I made from this. And this is kind of the, uh, the sum up of what I feel like who David is, okay? As I think Psalms, or David's wrestles, I guess, is a picture of a man whose anchor transcends his feelings and circumstances. I'll say that again uh, in a different way. David is a guy whose anchor and rock and togetherness and, well, anchor is the right word. His anchor is not affected by how he feels or what circumstances he's in. It's true regardless of feeling and circumstances. I don't know about you, but uh, feelings and circumstances have a lot of power to dictate where I feel like my anchor is. In fact, they're the go-tos. In fact, I make my feelings and circumstances my anchors. Not only, do I, like, not only do I often not have another anchor that I could pick from, I make those things my rock. Like as long as I'm on track for this career, or as long as I'm getting these grades, or as long as so-and-so likes me, or as long as my family's put together, like I'm making my anchor stuff. And then God's like one of the options sometimes. Like, oh, maybe I'll put my faith in God right now. Actually, you know what? It feels way better to put my faith over in these feelings. It just feels good, and it makes sense to us in our human brains. So, Psalms is a picture of a man whose anchor is transcending his feelings and circumstances, which is a nice thing to say until you realize, like, wow, that's hard to do. Wow, that's hard. Here's why I think this is important. And this is what led to that little sentence that I just said, was uh, it's been super fun over the last year, especially, being able to have um, great conversations with people who don't know Jesus and in, uh, in in, in my D group in particular and then in other places as well. So much fun. Wow. And uh, we have this little theory that I'm going to, I'll fill you guys in on. This is our, it's not a secret plan. This is, this is our hope. Is uh, I really would love to see more and more people come to know who Jesus is and how much he loves them. And I think the solution is us being the hands and feet of Jesus. Okay? So that's what we're kind of, our church is kind of <laughs> hoping to have us be the people that do that and us be part of it. Here's why I think that's good, is because these days, uh, you, can, you can disagree with me, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this is true. Authenticity is, is king these days, isn't it? Everyone wants an authentic experience. We're so overly marketed to. We get, you know, clickbait everything, and like authentic is the most precious, authenticity, I would say, is one of the most precious currencies that, you know, I don't know, our society has these days. So... Uh, why is that important for, for outreach and sharing Jesus with people? Is because we have this crazy idea, and I, I, uh, I'm always tempted, especially in church leadership, to separate the places where you're getting fed from the places where you do outreach. Okay, those are really Christian words. Uh, I, I apologize. But uh, I always want to separate the places where I'm being built into and just receiving from the Father, you know what I mean? And uh, from the places where I am sharing him with other people. I always want to create two different groups or two different moments. Here's this wild thought. I don't know if it's going to work, but I really like the idea. It's, it's working a little bit. Is what if that was the same place? What if the place where you were vulnerable and open and stuff was also the place where we invited people who don't know Jesus as well or at all to experience that? Here's why I think that's cool. Is because uh, I feel like the main thing 
that cracks open someone's heart to receiving Jesus is not getting the right answers so much as it is watching a Christian wrestle like David wrestles. Because here's what happens in a D group. As I do this, I show up and go, you know what, it's really hard with God these days. I know he's good, but I'm really struggling. And I sound like Psalms a little bit. Like, and I'm just open and honest and vulnerable because that's what I would do in a place where I was receiving. So why not let in the people who don't know Jesus into that? And so I just say, yeah, I'm uh, really doubting God's goodness these days. Next week or two weeks later, I come back and go, I had a good, exp- it was like God really came through. And then two weeks later, I'm like, oh, I'm struggling again. <laughs> and, uh, and here's what's cool about that is I feel like people are, get to watch me have an objective that transcends how I'm doing or transcends the success of God in my life. It, it's bigger than how I'm doing. It's bigger than whether my circumstances are going well or I'm feeling good these days. And I feel like people get to watch me in that moment pursue a person, not try to get better answers or values. Does that make sense? So we separate the getting fed moments from the, from the outreach moments. And what it does is it creates these like holy huddles, which are great and I enjoy them. But then people who don't know Jesus as well never get to see the vulnerability and authenticity of Christians because we walk into that moment with our like tie tucked up going, well, let me tell you about what, what you should believe. And I, have, I don't blame them for going, um, sorry, my values are working fine because they are. Like it's, it's going fine. And we end up just competing values like, well, Jesus has these values. And I was like, well, I have these. And it's just stalemate. But I feel like Jesus is trying to help us have a different objective of like, no, no, no display the pursuit of me as a person in your life. Don't defend me with how well I'm looking. Don't, don't defend me with your little example of my goodness. Although there's some, and they're great, share those. But are you pursuing a person? This is important. Uh, here's why. Is uh, I got I, 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 I'm super proud of myself. I listened through a really heady like regent lecture. It was like 16 hours of of, of wow. So uh, but I did it <laughs> and I listened through it and it was all on the Trinity. And it was, it was she did a great job of explaining it. But still I had to I had to power through because she literally talked about the Trinity for like 16 hours and why that matters. Like why God being a relational being matters to you and I. You know, the Trinity is just this super confusing, cute thing. It's like, oh, God's three persons, don't really get it. Okay, fine. Uh, but she, she's like, no, no, no. It really matters that God is relationship in and of himself. It really matters, and here's why. Is because to be a true self is to be in communion. That's the big aha thesis statement of this moment, is to be whole and Actually, I would say to be human, to be a self, to be a person is not about what you do or feel or create or it's, it's defined by the relationship you have with God. It's defined by communion. So my super quick paraphrase of what she described the Trinity as, and it's kind of a mind bender, but try and stay with me. God's is three persons, but what defines him is not the individuality of those three persons. What defines him is the relationship between each one. So if you picture it, there's like three dots with lines in between them. It's more about the lines between them than the individual. Like, 
He's so together that the only, he's so in communion that the only way to, to describe God is with relationship. I know that's a mind bender, but whatever, we'll move on. It's, it, what it speaks of to us is that to be alive is to be in communion. To be alive is to be connected. To be a self is to be together. To pursue meaning is to pursue a person. We have this saying in our church that we throw around a lot. It's called truth as a person. That's what we mean by that. We're trying to pursue a person. Okay, so our truest self is when we're in communion with him. Um, hear this, not our better self. Like our truest self is when we're in communion. Not, I think we like to make it like, oh, I'm, when I'm one with Jesus, I become a better person. Maybe, yeah, probably. But that's not the, that's not the point. It's you are you are your relationship with God. Okay, I'll stop, harp, I'll stop harping on it, but I really love that idea. So then, if God knows that our truest form of wholeness and togetherness and, 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 and what it means to be alive is our communion with him, what then, becomes our, what then becomes his primary foe? What becomes the thing he has to destroy to make that possible for us? And I think it's just quite simply isolation. He has to destroy isolation. That's his number one. He's like, I, I must de-isolate you. Not so that I can control you more. Not so that I can prevent bad things. or what. Like, that's what we always think it is. No, no, no. I want to de-isolate you so that you can be a person again. Like, so that you can be who I've called you to be. So that you can actually be alive is a way of saying it. It's a very interesting objective. So he's on a war against isolation. So uh, we often pick... When things aren't going well, I pick isolation. I pick isolation, but we don't call it that. We don't call it isolation. When things aren't going well, I never say, I never say in my head, well, God, I don't trust you, so I'm going to isolate myself from you. Like, that's a, we don't really say that in our heads, really, but here's what it looks like, for me anyways. What it looks like is called self-medication, which is a very more palatable way of saying, I don't want to be around you right now. And you have stopped becoming my primary goal, so I'm going to self-medicate. So I'll make my problem smaller, or I'll put him on trial, or I'll, you know, button up and shut down or not share my feelings. i got lots of tricks. But basically, the goal is self-medication, and the result is isolation, which leads to the biggest crime possible of I'm no longer who I was designed to be because I'm out of communion. And I just think that's such a beautiful picture of who God is, being like, I'm not trying to like, my objective is bigger than how you're doing. It's I'm trying to complete you. I'm trying to be your everything. So the question begs to be asked, why does, you know, why does isolation feel so good a lot of the time? Like, why does, it, why does it comfort us in the midst of our confusion? I think it's because intimacy is just super scary. Intimacy is a really scary thing. And uh, I just think we're quite bad at it. Oh, you know what? I don't know. I don't want to label you. I'll say I'm bad at it. I'm bad at having my primary goal be closeness. And I don't think we think this way very well. I mean, maybe it's, I don't know if it's a Western thing. I don't know what it is. But it's a mind bender to me to go, my primary objective is actually closeness, not togetherness. My primary goal is intimacy, not fixing something. Uh, and that dramatically shapes the way we see calamity, the way we see things not going well, the, 
when everything is shifting, it's an entirely different objective than making sure things stop shifting. And I'm just really bad at making intimacy my objective that transcends all the stuff. And God's like, I'm literally shaking you because I have a better bullseye than you do. And in that moment, I go, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it that knowing you wholly and completely is what makes me complete. I don't buy it. And I say it out loud and I choke on my words a little bit, being like, wow, did I just say that out loud? But I act that way all the time. So God's very, he's very confident when his solution to Job's issues is I'm good. Just full stop, I'm good. Not if you do this, you'll experience my goodness. Not even that. It's so base level, I'm good, that the only thing we can possibly do is, well, then I just want to be around you then, and I want to be close, and I want to draw near and figure out what that means. And I think that as intimacy becomes our, more and more of our, like our hearts cry, the things that happen in this life really start to become, I wouldn't say inconsequential, because they are, um, but they don't have as much power over us anymore. There's a line that um, my dad threw at me a couple days ago that I've been sharing with people, and it's, I haven't stopped thinking about it since. And he just said it in passing, and it just kind of rocked me, and so I've been thinking about it a lot, and it really fits into the sermon. And he said, uh, you know there's worse things in life than pain, right? And then he kind of walked away. I forget what we were doing. But I remember just stopping and being like, whoa. I think most of the time, I think pain is the worst possible thing imaginable. Like my own pain. What could be worse than my own pain? Don't you feel this way? And, I, and then I'm like, wait, then what would, what would be worse than pain? And I feel like God spoke to me, and maybe this will bless you, but I feel like he told me, he's like, it's distance. It's distance from me. That's worse than pain. I'm like, wow. I know that's true in my head. I don't know if that's true in my heart yet. I'll be real with you. Distance from me is worse than your pain. Whew. And I see it in Psalms here. I see him going, I'm in so much pain, but I can't imagine being distant from you. So I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to consult you, but it's all with you. Like, that's the beauty of Psalms, is that it's just constantly addressed to God. That's probably the biggest miracle of the whole thing, is that he stays engaged with God the whole time. I feel like a good byline for Psalms would be like, Psalms, this is personal. Like, it's just like, it's personal. And I love that. It's like, it's, it's personal. Like, David's going, hey, you know what? Everything, everything in my life, this is personal. And we see that as a negative way, but like, oh, this is personal, like we're about to... But think about what that word means. He's going, no, everything in my life is personal with you. And I don't think this way very often. It's personal. So this is kind of what I'll, I'll, uh, I'll leave you with, but I feel like Jesus paid it all to know you, not to just fix you, right? Ah. And when you look at the cross and you look at what he did... And you look at him uh, tearing the veil. Okay, so that's a cliche. I'll explain what that means. In, uh, it's the, the, the tearing of the veil is one of the most powerful images, I think, that I know of. 
But when Jesus died on the cross, there's this veil in the temple that held the Holy of Holies where only the highest of high priests could go, and that's where God's presence dwelt. And then when Jesus died, the veil tore, which is a beautiful metaphor for the Spirit of God now dwelling inside his people because our sins are paid for, and he gets to be with us. Ah, and I just love that image of the veil being torn. And then I, I so de-value uh, the cross when I don't make the goal personal. And we do it all the time. Hey, Jesus paid for my sins. That's handy. Um, I would, you know what? I would say that by and large, following Jesus and his values and morals makes your life better. Just does. He said some really great ideas that are worth following. Love your neighbor's great advice. Uh, but it can all be missed. The whole point can be missed and that it's all personal. And wow, do I, I de-emphasize the point of the cross when I just make it about being fixed or about, uh, I don't know, something less than knowing God. Like, why would he tear the veil? Why would he do that? He wants to know you and live with you and love you. So, Psalms, part one, this week. What do we do when our lives aren't going well? And uh, I've just started to see shaky ground as an opportunity for relationship. And all of a sudden, everything that used to shake me and used to frustrate me is like, what an amazing opportunity to have, an, to have yet another opportunity to pursue you as a person, not as a genie. <laughs> like, that's an amazing opportunity. Genies just fix circumstances, right? I don't love you. And it sounds so simple to say these things, but at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm always convicted when I say the simplest things, they come out of my mouth, and then I realize how terrible I am at them. But I feel like that's probably a good sermon because it's confronting the core element of what's going on in our heart. So I would encourage you, maybe read some Psalms this week and uh, watch the way that David flip-flops between confusion and wholeness. But I'll just read this last, um, this last verse, verse 11 again. It says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And I've never realized, like, why are you so disturbed? It's a question to his own soul. Why are you so disturbed? Why? I get to praise God. I get to know him. So I'm going to shut up or else I'll start repeating myself. But uh, I'll pray for us in this regard and then Worship team, you guys can come up. And, uh, yeah, as I, as I pray, um, yeah, we get to use this as an opportunity to pursue him as a person again. And uh, we're going to sing a song, uh, I think, uh, Good, Good Father, which I, which I really love. And it's just confessing who he is and confessing a desire to be intimate with him. And I know it's simple, uh, but I love that it's simple. God, uh, this morning we, 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 we are reading your word and what it says, and we're reading uh, the, the kind of wrestle that you thought would be great to have in scripture. And it isn't, uh, it isn't a full picture. It isn't buttoned up. It isn't complete. It doesn't give us a lot of advice, but it does display a heart that we want. It does display a trust in you that we want. And so, Father, I pray for all the, all the different circumstances in this room. 
uh, and all the very good reasons we would have to self-medicate, I pray that we would lay those before you now. And God, in your grace, uh, through just our humility, would you show us more of yourself as we lay those things on, our, on the altar, as we lay our ways that we self-medicate on just in front of you. I pray that you would meet us in a way that can only be done when, when, when we come close like that. And so help us see whatever is in our life that just doesn't, uh, doesn't quite make sense. Would you, would you give us the courage to place that before you? And I pray that you'd rush into that moment in, in, in ways that we, we, we can't imagine. I thank you that these things take a long time, that they're a journey, and it's a hard disposition, and there's no magic pill. We know that. But today, we choose to have our hearts surrendered to you in the midst of our calamity and our confusion. And I thank you that you're a personal God who's here with us now, who just longs to draw close, and we're only, we're only ever one decision away from your presence. And we're so grateful for that, for how close and personal you are. Oh, oh, oh.